Released on Sunday, October 5th, 2014, This Agile Life, Episode 64, Anything That Is Sacred Is Not Agile. Our sponsor tonight is CodeShip. CodeShip is continuous delivery made simple. Try CodeShip for free. Setup only takes three minutes at CodeShip.io. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Amos King. Uh, grumble, grumble, scrum, grumble. Scrumble. <laughs> Let's get ready to scrumble. Also hey, with you better us. watch it. That's borderline copyright infringement. Yes, I know. Also with us is Craig Buchek. Hello, everybody. Uh, my cat is uh, on my keyboard, so hopefully you won't hear any of that. Yeah, I can't abide cats, so get that cat out of there. Joining us all also tonight, Lee McCulley. Hey, guys. How's it going? I'm a big cat fan, actually, so... Me too. I love cats. I've just never been able to finish a whole one. <laughs> now I can quit telling everybody I see that joke because I've now given it to the world. You got to have something to get the hair out of your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And we have a full house tonight because also with us is the Agile Factor, Jason Tice. Wow. I feel like we have a stand-up meeting going on here where we are already off track. Wow. <laughs> We need a servant leader to keep us on track and focused on our goal for our sprints tonight. Since Tice has like his own nickname, the Agile Factor, can he have his own like lead-in music? Yeah, we can work on that. He, oh, that needs, sounds like he fun. needs some intro music. Get your like, ukulele. <laughs> Thank you, Amos. I appreciate your welcomeness and your welcoming me to back to the team. I know I've been gone for a while, so I appreciate that and. I've enjoyed, I've listened to a few of the episodes. I have to admit, I have a little bit of a backlog because backlogs are good to have. They ensure that you kind of know what they're the next things you have to do. And so I look forward to catching up on a few of the episodes that I've missed. Like the ones where we trash MBAs. Uh, no, I heard that one and I almost crashed off the highway. So because not all MBAs are bad, John. Okay, so. There's always an exception that proves the rule. Yeah. Let's go ahead and jump into our discussion topic tonight before we throw Jason over the edge. Oh my goodness. I'm or sure under happen- the bus. I'm sure it will happen very quickly with what we're about to talk about. <laughs> you think? Oh, I think it will. Wait, okay. wait. I think that you and John will both get thrown under the bus a little bit tonight. Oh, yeah. Since you're both certified in this master. I am not certified. Oh. I'm not a certified scrum master. Oh. He's backing away now. I don't know yeah. where you got that. John, you now have more respect for me. Oh, boy. Oh, well, maybe I should change my statement then. <laughs> I don't know that I I want more respect. <laughs> so I think it was Mac Terry on Twitter that recommended to us that we discuss uh, an article uh, that was written recently by a guy named Giles Boquette. And the name of the article is Why Scrum Should Basically Just Die in a Fire. Can we start out saying that you should just read Giles Boquette's blog in general. He's okay. always very insightful, entertaining. He's just got a, a good blog that you can learn a lot from. No, I don't think we can say that. I'm going to start there. So the article is an enumeration of a number of gripes against Scrum. 
And uh, he starts the article off talking about some problems that he has with the estimation and the planning process with Scrum. And I think one of the quotes from the article is that Agile values communication and why do we limit the technical discussions that always occur during estimation is one of his one of his gripes about the poker planning process. And why is it when we're doing poker planning or when we're doing any sort of process of estimation of stories, why do we cut off technical discussions when the principles of Agile are for communication? We talk about communication constantly on the show, right, Jason? Yeah, but John, the key thing here, and I hear, having read the article, and some of the references that were included in the article, like there's an embedded YouTube link of like a really poorly facilitated stand-up meeting. I think that you have to understand that there is a right way to do planning poker. Many people do it the wrong way. It should allow for discussions, but I think where the challenge is, when have we had enough discussion that we should say, okay, let's go and take that discussion if it's maybe five, 10 minutes and rather continue to deep dive it. Let's go get on the keyboard and let's code it and see what happens and get some real feedback. And I think that's what he's trying to say here. And I think there's a value in that. So um, what do you guys think? Amos? I agree. I think that too many times people just say, okay, let's just throw up numbers and they take an average. I kind of agree with Tice that I think that planning poker is not a bad thing. I think it's poorly implemented most of the time. Yeah, it is. Uh, I like the idea that everybody holds up a card or something and their opinions aren't swayed very much. And if everybody comes out with the same number, then great. Maybe we don't need to have this discussion right now. Let's put it off till later. If everybody has different numbers, though, you shouldn't average them and move on. You should set them back down and continue the discussion. Yeah, because I mean, planning poker is really it's not about the number. It's about consensus as a team about what needs to be done. And and at that point, okay, guess what? If you have a, a wide variation, that means you don't have consensus. That's something to talk about and figure out. And so to me, if we're averaging the number, that's just completely against the rules. Agreed. Let's see what uh, Craig has to say. I'm going to disagree with those guys. I think keeping the conversation short is a good thing here. I don't think you want to get too detailed when you're just estimating. Estimates aren't supposed to be super accurate. You know, they're, they're supposed to be estimates. Surprise, surprise. So I think having a short conversation, trying to have a shared understanding that's not too detailed is a good thing. Recently, I read something about Jeff Bezos and his managers were having a, a conversation or at some big meeting. And he's like, they're like, communication, you, you need to communicate with everybody. He's like, no, 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 stop. He's like, you know, if you start communicating with hundreds of people, just all the overhead, you're just going to be communicating. You're not going to get anything done. So that's why he keeps his team small. That's why Agile says to keep your team small. So I think this is a case where a conversation, keeping the conversation short is helpful. You can have those conversations that you need to get to in the details when you start working on it, not while you're just estimating. Well, to your point, Craig, we, hey, this has turned into like a really bad conference call. This is hilarious. Because the one thing I want to say, Craig, I was, earlier this month in September 2014, I was with Luke Homan up in uh, Boston at a conference. And one thing that, that he says, and if you've seen Luke present, he calls about um, it's kind of an innovation games catchphrase is that collaboration stops at eight. So if you want to really collaborate, you've got to have a small group. And so to your point, broadcast communication, it's broadcasting. It's not collaborating. And if we're truly writing software, we need to be collaborating in a small group, maybe a mob, maybe a pair. If it's greater than eight, you can't collaborate. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, John, that's not a Luke Holman invitation, but that's funny. And that's there's a lot of truth to that. I believe that the episode title is now Don King. (laughs) Tom King on collaboration. Uh, I kind of think that 
the purpose of planning poker is wrong, that it really should be about when do we need discussion and maybe when should we split stories? So maybe, maybe we just get some cards that say that are green or red. Red means we need to split this up and green means move on. And we just do that and then go the no estimates way at that point. The story count estimates, basically. Yeah. So if somebody has a red, that means we got to split this up. And it doesn't matter if one person has a red, they just they can tell you how to split it. I found that the no estimates is sort of an advanced team method. I find that giving points actually does help in teams starting out. But I think he kind of misses some of the better ways to solve this problem. Like, just take the average or take the highest. You know, those are just fine. They're just estimates. You know, don't get overly concerned about, oh, they're not perfect. Well, they're not supposed to be perfect. Or get consensus if you can and take the highest if you can't is, is another one. Taking the highest isn't a bad idea because someone obviously has more ideas about what it may involve. And I don't know that they even need to bother telling you what those are at this point. One thing I want to throw out there that actually I did about two years ago with a team that was uh, doing story point estimates. We actually used it as a way to promote learning. So if we had someone who maybe was newer on the team and when we voted, they gave something a high, a high vote because they thought it was harder or more complex and then someone like Amos, who's been on the team for forever and is just an expert and gives everything a one because, you know, everything's easy. We actually use that to kind of intentionally identify people that should work together to promote learning. And it worked really well. So that, that's a way to take that same data set and really say, OK, let's not hash it out in the planning meeting. But Amos, you know, if you know how to do this and, you know, Craig, it's new to you. Why don't you two go get on the keyboard and start, you know, doing red, green refactor, writing the code for this story. And together you're going to learn about it. And at the end of it, we'll just figure out how long it took us. Did you say don't do the estimate? Write that number down afterwards. I said <laughs> use the delta between the story points to kind of think of that as maybe there's a correlation between how much people understand about the code base, you know, or the problem. And then use that to say, okay, again, Amos, if you're the expert, I want you to intentionally work with someone who knows less. So you're learning and you're promoting cross functionality across the team. Here's where I go back to with the, the article that Giles wrote and his primary gripe in regards to planning poker. And it's not with the mechanics at all of planning poker itself with the cards and the showing of the cards. What he had the gripe with was how the process would, after you voted and, and after you had to start having a discussion, how that discussion would sometimes get short-circuited by maybe the scrum master or the coach that would say, we're going into too much detail. Let's table this and move on. Where I think the point needs to be made here is, while yes, in Agile, we do value communication, we don't value communication that is capricious or unnecessary or unnecessarily verbose. And I want to tie this back to what's the value of doing the estimate and having the planning session. There can be value in discussions that occur. And so I think that it's important to highlight those and allow those discussions to happen. But they also don't necessarily need to slow down, you know, an hour long planning meeting so that you can only get through two or three stories. You want to make sure that you can rip through the estimation process in your planning poker session so that you can just get done with that. Because the value of those estimates is very, very low. Like Amos talked about once before. Who are you going to find in the business that wants to pay you $10,000 for a box of estimates? <laughs> right? 
let's see what Jason has to say. Well, what I was going to say, and I'll, I'll just throw this out there as something I'd love your feedback on is, you know, this idea of if you're in a planning meeting, having a, I'm going to say a discussion time limit. And to me, that's not saying the discussion needs to end when the timer goes off. But really, that's a sign to me that maybe as a team, we, we don't know enough. And somebody needs to go out and again, do some real work to come back with information or just get it done. And this idea that, you know, you got to get through 20 stories, you impose a, a five minute limit for discussion. And then at the end, if you don't have consensus, that's the sign that you need to basically do a spike or something. I mean, what do you guys think about a practice like that? I think that that practice is fine. I, I feel that five minutes is way less. The big issue that Maybe that's that, too long or too short, too short. OK, uh, I, I've seen way too many times that stories need to be split up or discussed much longer than that. I've seen stories get discussed for a half hour and suddenly everybody's like, oh, we can split it here, here and here. And then we have a bunch of five minutes or one hour stories and we're done. And everybody comes out with a great understanding. I think whenever you have a problem with consensus, you need to continue that discussion or say we're not going to work on this this week. Or we're going to spike it because the problem is there either isn't understanding on what is required or the story is too large. But as Giles points out, is that planning poker, even in really high functioning teams, devolves into something that Craig already said is, hey, let's pick the highest guy, whoever's the highest, because we're tired of talking. And so I don't I don't find that a a devolution, though. I find that a useful yeah, okay, fine. We have an estimate. We well, just wanted an estimate. We didn't want to what I'm, exact amount of time we expected to take. What I'm saying is instead, if you don't have a consensus, don't grab that highest one and say, let's go. Say, look, we don't have a consensus. It's okay to be off by one or two cards or something. But if yeah. we don't have something really close all the way across the board, maybe it's time to spike or throw it away and so, come back and look at it next week when we so have some more problem, knowledge. The problem I have with a half hour conversation about one story is you've probably started designing at that point. And, yeah. and I think that's probably too early to start designing. Yeah. And if a team wants to do that, I think back to when we had Woody Zool on, you know, turn your story meeting, just do a mob programming session and start coding the story right there. We might as well throw an estimates out. If you're not going to, if you're just going to well, start, well, if we're going to talk about Woody, you know, Woody is no estimates. Well, so I think that oh, yeah. if you start drawing up UML diagrams and discussing which objects are going to do what and what goes where, then yes, you are in a design meeting and it's time to shut that down. Yeah. I'd love to hear in a minute what Lee's thinking, because he's been so quiet. But the one thing is I was listening to Craig and Amos speak. The one thing I kept hearing is something that was to be a, it challenges the reason why we write user stories in the first place. A user story is an invitation to have a conversation, you know, from the three C's that Ron Jeffrey did. And what I'm hearing is, oh, we just take the high numbers so we can move on. And we're not having that conversation, which is the practice I would caution against. So, Lee, what do you think of all this? You've been quiet. You haven't said a word. So I think you guys are pretty much covering it, all the different aspects. Well, let's talk about stand-ups then, because from planning poker, Giles moves on to complaints about stand-up meetings and the fact that it seems like, you know what, I want to make a general statement about this article right now. It feels like Giles is a scorned scrummer, that he's been part of some really poorly executed scrum processes, maybe some things that have gotten away from him personally or that have been inflicted on him. And he seems very injured and very damaged by the whole experience. And this article, this blog post seems to be his outlet. So he talks about stand-up meetings where they quickly devolve into hour-long discussions 
And he seems to be further put out by the fact that managers often attend and then take over and sit down while forcing the rest of the team to continue standing as if to, uh, in a sign of respect or devotion to the said managers. Devotion. Yeah. I I actually would like to have Giles on at some point to talk about this if hey, we could. Here's a hint. If you call it a stand-up and you're not standing up, why are you blaming the process that tells you to have a stand-up? I mean, if you're not following the directions, you know, if you're baking a cake and you don't follow the directions, you don't get a cake, you don't blame the directions. Well, you know, but I think... I to what John's saying, and again, you know, out there in the in the trenches of the scrum war, we can call it. It's interesting because scrum is so prescriptive. It says exactly what to do from an assessment perspective. It is easy to come in with the scorecard and say, is the team doing this? Yes or no. And so what I'm amazed at and, you know, some of the things he points out is how can people, you know, beat on a team or leadership? They think they're doing it the right way. But in reality, the process tells you exactly what to do, and they're blatantly disregarding the process. How, how do you know you're doing it the right way when it says to stand up and you're not standing up? How stupid are you? You have an well, NBA or something? Well, <laughs> 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 I, I think that that's minimalist of the problem. I've had 45 minute stand ups where everybody stood up. Sitting down is a ridiculous argument that we're just throwing out. Well, but we're not throwing it out. Up. There's a reason you stand up because it makes it painful to have a 45 minute meeting. It's not intended to be a 45-minute long or hour-long, let's listen to managers and MBAs pontificate about statuses and schedules. and Yeah, if, if your stand-up is a status meeting, you're wasting time. If you just need to report status to the Scrum Master or a project manager or a manager, have each person do that individual. Save them all that time. It is yeah, ridiculous. Here's, here's so then, hold on, hold on a second. Hold on a second, Sorry. Ernest. If it's not for status, let's provide the real reason why we have stand-up meetings. It's to share information. So, so if, if of, you're saying the, it's the same as yesterday, you know, your status, that's not worth sharing. I finished some stories, that's not worth mentioning. You, you might mention what you're working on next so that, you know, people can have some input on it to share, you know, after the stand-up meeting. But definitely, if you're struggling with something, it's probably past time to talk about it. But it should be about sharing information. Not so, about status. So many times, though, we're sharing that information at the stand-up meeting. And part of that can be solved by stepping outside of Scrum and throwing up a Kanban board. Now you have all of your status. It's right there in front of you. Let's talk about challenges and and cool things and move on. I think there's still some value there, though. Let's see what Jason thinks. But I think we are falling victim to one of the greatest fallacies of Scrum. And that is that in the community, there is a, I want to say, a partial understanding of what the stand-up meeting is. The stand-up meeting is a commitment meeting, and, and many coaches say this all over the place. And what that says is, as a team, regardless of if you're doing Scrum or Kanban, you have a goal. Everyone should know what that goal is. So the first thing to have an effective stand-up, you need to have a goal. People need to know what it is. If you don't have a goal, people don't know what it is, your stand-up, it will be ineffective. Next. Everyone should be talking about what they're doing to support the goal. And to your point, if you have a mechanism that you're making that transparent, like a Kanban board, ideally, it's a fast discussion to say, yep, I'm on track. I don't have any impediments. And the key thing when we talk about the three questions that stand up, you know, what you got done yesterday, what you're going to do today, what you're going to do, or what, and if you have any impediments, that should all be based on the foundation of the goal. 
And all too often I see teams that are talking about status or whatever. And it turns out if you ask people, they don't even know what the objective or the goal is of the sprint or the, of the release or the milestone. I agree with you, Jason. I think that in addition to commitments, I would like to broaden it to say that the purpose of the stand-up meeting is an opportunity to allow the team to self-organize itself for a small period of time so that we can, yes, we can say the reason why we say what we accomplished yesterday is so that we can demonstrate I didn't sit on my ass. I made forward progress. And then we make a commitment today so that I can demonstrate to the team, hey, I'm about to work on this and it has value. And now you know about that. And if there's, if you have concerns, you can question me on that. If I'm blocked by anything, maybe someone on the team can help me unblock or they can say, yeah, I ran into that same problem the other day. I'm, I could help unblock you or someone else could, maybe a scrum master needs to intervene and say, here are some steps that we can take collectively to unblock this. Okay, Amos. With a team of four to eight people, you shouldn't really have to say, here's what I completed yesterday. Everybody on the team should probably know. And you should probably be working with other people on the teams. Why we talk about pairing and pair switching and things like that. So we know that forward progress is going on. But I want to be really fair to this article that Giles wrote. He says, to be fair to Scrum, it's not intended to work this way. So he's saying, this is what happens. This is what happens in the real world when people are trying to implement this. In his, and, but in it's not intended to be that way. And then he, he goes off about how guys like us come in and try to help teams get better at these things, which is very true. And I have to say that I have to disagree about the status a bit. And I don't need the status for what you did yesterday. And you don't have to prove to me that, that you're worth being on this company and on this project. I trust you. You're part of my team. I know what you can and can't do. And I trust you to be uh, productive. You don't have to convince me of that. Lee, so, if I could hug you this computer, I would. <laughs> you can. Aww. Just send them emoticons. I agree. It's not 100% necessary, but I think it's a nice way. Again, you don't have to prove yourself, but it's a nice chance to just share. I made forward progress. If you're asking for that and that's it becomes a pressure that, oh, I need to justify my existence. And that becomes a daily sort of a thing. And at that point, that status update is just a look how good I am kind of a thing. And I don't see that as being useful. So I'm I will now bring up the second fallacy of Scrum and or this one is actually a little bit more broad based about agile. And that is that there is a mindset when we tell you we have a self managing team that we just put some people over in a team area or we give them a project that are all going to work remotely. And we say, go forth, prosper and be excellent. And we don't do anything. And in some instances, we sometimes in the unicorn instances that works out well, but more often than not, it doesn't. And so one thing I do want to mention here about the standup, and to me is it's a chance to, like John said, to kind of say, here's what I got done, you know, to be proud of what you got done. That helps a person stay motivated and focused and engaged. And on top of that, maybe there's a chance for other people on the team to give a little recognition like, yeah, John, you got those stories done yesterday. That helped us out. Awesome. And Far often than not, teams don't do that. They lose their motivation and they get disengaged. Next thing you know, the self-managing team falls apart. But when it becomes a status meeting, it takes a long time and everyone at the stand-up meeting becomes disengaged. I've been there. But I think it's, that's it's where worse. there's the need for, again, someone either needs to coach it or facilitate it. 
or the team needs to have people that know how to make it work in accordance with whatever the mental model of that team is. And they need to figure out what works. So again, if you got Lee on your team, he doesn't need the cheerleading. But I work with people that I know for a fact that it kind of is a little bit of a pep session. It's motivating for them. And that helps them stay focused and stay committed to the sprint goal. Who's doing the cheerleading in that case? I'm, uh, I'm not sure. Well, the coach could help, but other people help too. You know, it's a, it's a great chance. And again, why wait for your retrospective? Because, you know, a lot of times, you know, you guys have talked about the happiness metric or you play the thank you game and your retrospective. That's great. But some people, you know, some people are a little bit more needy. I'll call it like it is. And so this idea of, you know what? Hey, every 24 hours, we're going to have a real quick little pep session. And, you know, maybe think of it as, you know, an energy session, you know, like let's really focus on what are we going to get done today? What's holding us back? And rah, rah, rah. Go team. Five minute hate. Oh, OK. So we can see <laughs> now we can see who was a cheerleader in college and who was. What's five minute hate? I don't know if it's three-minute hate or five-minute hate. It's an Orwell thing, uh, 1984. It riles up, basically, the... All right. It's different. I mean, put way, I've had... You know, it's interesting to do a little survey or actually, again, have a retrospective where you focus on your daily scrum. What happens at it? You know, ask people candid questions, you know? Do you get value, you know? Or even pose hypotheticals. If we took on an experiment to say, we're going to try to have a positive attitude and an upbeat stand-up meeting for the next sprint, would that help us? Would we have more fun? Would our happiness metric go up, you know, and, and see if it helps. Try an experiment. You know, forcing people's happiness to go up seems like a, uh, a futile I, attempt. I'm not forcing it. I'm saying if we try something different, do we see an impact in our metrics? Not forcing it to go up. You will have more happiness at your standups. The morale will improve. The beatings will continue until no, morale no, improves. That's a hypothesis. And then we collect real data and we see if it worked. And guess what? If it doesn't work, then OK, go away. Real life. I've seen it work where some teams said, you know what? We don't need a cheerleading session in the morning. Okay. So they kept it very basic. But I've seen other teams where the cheerleading session was highly beneficial for them. And again, they kept it short. So it wasn't a waste of time. It was like five, 10 minutes and they had a little bit of fun with it. Okay. I think we're, we're, we're off. The, I think off the, the question's wrong. Right it should be what made you smile yesterday? What made you frown yesterday? And oh, ponies. what are you going to do to make someone else? Rainbows. Unicorns. Amos is a closet brony. Uh, Let's man. talk about sprints. Giles' assertion here is that... Go ahead, Amos. Nomenclature sucks here. <laughs> you need to pick a different name. We're not running a race. Oh, it's, you're already on it. Everything in Scrum is about how fast can we go? Let's measure our velocity. Let's sprint to the end of this. Let's make a fixed iteration waterfall. I'm a little pissed when I read through here that he doesn't talk about how it's just fixed waterfall, small iterative waterfall. Uh, yeah, this is the section where I think he nailed it. I don't think I disagree with anything in this, this section. I mean, a sprint is the antithesis of sustainable pace. It's um, just a word. Call it, 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 call it an iteration. Hey, so hey, is asshole, mean things. you don't like it when I call you that. <laughs> yes, I do. Words mean things. Words have implications. Yeah, I, I yes, call words it do mean things. Oh, and the words That's that you choose to describe, the words yeah. that you choose to describe things carry a certain meaning and a certain thought pattern in people's minds. Okay, but let's take a, a turn of here in the discussion. And Lee, I, maybe this will get you involved in here. Because, Lee, you're like me. Your other half is an educator, okay? And if there's one thing education has taught us, and when I say I mean the act of teaching, fast feedback enforces learning. So this idea of saying, you know what? Hey, let's just scramble together. Let's 
scrape some work together. Let's do as little work as possible. Let us do what we need to do to start writing software. So scribble some user stories on post-it notes, and then let's try to get those done as fast as possible. So we have something that we can ideally show to our customer, get feedback about if we're building the right thing. And then as a team, we can call timeout. We say, okay, we just tried to run this sprint and some things didn't go very well. So let's talk about, because you know what? We're going to do it again. Let's talk about what we can change. Why yeah, does that not work? That makes here's sense. the problem. You put a freaking finish line at the end and you tell them, here's all the tasks that you have to do to get over that finish line. And we're going to call it a sprint. And guess what? At the end of it, you need to have all those tasks finished. And it fails horribly because if you don't get all those tasks finished, people start working overtime. They start failing at sustainable pace because you've time boxed them on how much time in order to get a fixed set of things done. Let me tell you a little story about a team that had sprints. These sprints were like five or six weeks. And usually they ran about a week late. And when they were done with the sprint and that last week or two was usually an 80 hour week. And when they finished the sprint, they took a week off and did nothing. They did some sprint planning, which took about three or four days. And basically, we just sat around and did nothing. It was amazing because we just sprinted. We needed to rest. Okay. Surprise, okay, okay. surprise. Okay, so I get the issue with the name, okay? Because again, if you run, you know, a sprint is a pace you cannot sustain. Okay, so I, I'll take that. And again, we, we should try to have Jeff Sutherland on for quite a lot. He could explain why he chose that. Maybe we should go back to iteration. Same thing. It takes the speed away. It reinforces the same idea of a goal. And again, we're already not following the holy book of Scrum because ideally what? I think the book of Scrum, when it first came out, said that really sprint should be two to four weeks. So if you're already at five weeks, Craig, you're already too long. If you've taken project management courses, what's the number one way to reduce risk in a project? Anyone know? Shorten it shorten it or have smaller work items going through your system. So by the fact that you're choosing to manage work in a four week chunk, if you want to reduce risk, make it smaller. Okay, Avis, go ahead. I know you're ready to explode. Give me the release here. Let me have it. Outside of the nomenclature issue, you still have the issue of, okay, we change it to an iteration, but it's still iterative waterfall. You have a defined set of work that you pick up front, you estimate up front, you say that you can get it done, and they call it a commitment. Yeah. And then you say, this is exactly what we're going to get done. We already know that estimates fail. I'm perfect at estimating. Yay. It's just iterative waterfall. You, you, I've seen so many scrum masters come in and say, Oh, wait, you can't change this stuff in the middle of the sprint because you've learned more. That's just wrong. No, you have to. But we can add more but, work in the middle, though. Well, no, no, no. That the sprint commitment is sacred. It does not change. It goes in the next sprint. Can you come this, talk to our our? Place wait, of I've work heard that that it's work. sacred, and the, and the things that fall over go into the next sprint. They go well, in the next sprint. Anything that's sacred is not that you agile. Figured out that just isn't right in the middle of it. So Lee says anything that is sacred is not agile. Lee, why anything. why is that? Because that means you're not allowed to change as you need to. That's the whole point of Agile. You're constantly evaluating. You're not evaluating on some time frame. But you're it's evaluating a, constantly. It's a small slice of work. So again, there's reasons. There are certain. Yeah, okay. How about a small slice of work I, called? A I'm cool. You want to call them one to do it. That's right. Let's call them one hour sprints from now on. We have sprints every hour, and we deploy at the end of it. Unless, of course, you have these sacred other things that you have to do at every sprint, like planning. So what if I have these sacred things in real life that are called hard system architecture dependencies? Don't don't start going down. 
don't start digging the hole. That's that's a You're red digging hair. a different no, no, no. hole. That's, that's okay. a red hair. No, I'm building a really matter. cool app, and I need to get some data from Amos's. And it's called the Golden Calf. Okay, it's full of sacredness. And so I need to basically, how do I, if I'm not doing some type of iterative planning? Okay, I identify something I need in my app. Okay. I don't do the data for that. Amos's thing does that. So I got to work with him. We got to make a, an agreement, agree upon how we're going to communicate with each other. Amos then needs to build his stuff. And then I can choose. Do I want to take on the risk of building it? Well, Amos's thing is in flight or do I want to wait? OK, if you're building in a complex system environment, I'd like to hear how we're going to manage that. You're if we step away from this type of an iterative planning process. You're talking. Well, why about don't you start when he finishes? You, Why can't you just start when he finishes? Is that that hard to figure and, out? And, oh you prob- and you're probably you're talking about a single thing. That's probably not the only thing done in your sprint or what you call it a sprint. So you're talking about one thing that absolutely has to have maybe some planning. And that's a real world situation. And you have to deal with things that absolutely have to have planning. But 90 percent of the bullshit that goes into a sprint doesn't need that kind of level of planning. It really needs the decisions to be made closer to when it's done than at the beginning of the sprint. OK, but then that may be the problem here we're talking about in this article is, again, I've seen planning meetings that kind of like we talked about before with the planning poker discussion. They could become design sessions where really, instead of discussing and diagramming how to write the software, I'd be like, get the computer out, have a mob and just get it done. You can't do that because your sprint hasn't started yet. You're still in the planning meeting. Well, again, and so I'm saying this idea and the reason why Scrum has a person called a Scrum Master who has to be a skilled facilitator is that you have to understand when people are doing things the right way and when they're doing them the wrong way. And all we're talking about here are people and Scrum implementations where the rituals of Scrum are really not being facilitated as they were intended. That I can agree with, although the right way, there's the wrong way, but start with the prescribed way. But then, you know, are there better ways? Can we improve on that? I mean, that's part of what agility is, is measuring and planning and adapting. But if you're sitting down, that's pretty certain that that's not an improvement of a stand-up. I mean, well, you have to you have to improve in the right direction, not just change Yeah, or, or real life. I was doing a workshop the other day. And, and so in the workshop, because we're talking about kind of like how Agile's evolving. And so actually, again, we had Woody Zool on the podcast many almost a year ago now, it seems. And um, he put a time lapse video of mob programming up on YouTube where you can see in about three minutes, an eight hour day of mob programming out where Woody works. I believe it's at Hunter. And they got 10 stories done in one day. And what's interesting, what everyone always sees in that video that they want to talk about is they see the product owner sitting with the team all day long, which you know is needed for mob programming and is really best case. But in many, in many environments, that's not feasible. Yes, I agree it should change. But in that case, you know, this idea of Scrum, what Scrum ensures is you get the right people in the room to basically make a commitment to get a set of work done. And then the team is able to go out and execute that. And if the product owner isn't available, the team has a batch of work that they can still focus on to add value. You know, there's a couple of things that I think are some positives within a sprint that we're overlooking. It is a time box. And the fact that we have a time box for a number of teams that aren't very well practiced in delivering in small increments, having a a small time box forces them to think on a smaller scale. I agree to Craig's point that 
If you start with a one-week or a two-week sprint as something that you're trying on and you you get good at that, then you can evolve it into a practice that's maybe more advanced, like some sort of continuous flow process or a Kanban sort of approach. What do you think, Craig? So I have a bit of an issue with the time box idea. A time box is, okay, we're going to spend this much amount of time and see if we can get it done. But what happens if you don't get it done? What if you don't get all your stories done in your sprint? You, do you give up? What, what happens then? Because that's usually what a time box means. Like, well, we're going to give up or we're going to try something different. What are you wow. going to do with the sprint? I would say the ideal is to continuously learn from those instances when that occurs and find ways to break stories down into smaller chunks so that you're finishing stories very regularly. You're able to have a, a continuous flow of, of work that is being completed. And it's not the end of the world if you have a story that happens to not get completed in the sprint because it was most likely there was some sort of an, an external force that caused that to happen because you're completing stories very regularly just by this, you know, you've gotten to that to that evolutionary point. If you're regularly rolling stories over because they're too big, then that exposes an issue that you and your team can focus on and find ways to go about doing a better job of creating very small stories. I heard you say continuous a few times, and that's where I think that the sprint or the iteration becomes a problem is it reduces that continuous flow idea by saying, here's the locked in set of work that we do. What do you do? Craig said, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you over deliver and you finish, you're supposed to finish next week and you finish this week instead. Like th then you go and have this other meeting where, so if I you finish the sprint a continuous flow issue, I like, I hear a lot of people say Scrum is training wheels for Agile. It's not training <laughs> wheels for Agile. It's training wheel for Agile. You have one wheel on your bike, so you can only scrape up one side when you fall because you can only fall one direction. So, so if you finish your sprint early, I guess you get to rest longer than the rest of the guys. Oh, that's nice. So again, we are missing one of the key elements of Scrum. And yes, we have debated this, and you could even quote me because you're probably going to call me a hypocrite here. We have this thing called velocity. We <laughs> know we have a... Okay, again, we're doing work. We're running a business. So we need to have a little idea of what our capacity to do work is, okay? Again, if you want to run a company and suppose you want to do a startup and go out and get investment, you're going to have to talk to the VC and the bank and answer that question. What so the you, hell does a sprint have to do with what my velocity is or how I can plan? Where I'm going, Amos, to say is because what you're talking about is you're not really using velocity the right way. So I go, I do a sprint. I then have some feedback. I have some learning. What was my velocity? I can then use that to so, forecast and plan the next one. And it's kind of like, I'll even use this term. So it's a game. Hey, I set a goal. A sprint? Can't you have checkpoints? You know, like whenever you're looking at something on a computer and trying to check like memory, you say every 500 milliseconds, see how much memory I have, see how much memory I have, see how much memory I have. And then you average it all together. So why don't you just say, hey, once a week, we're going to see how many have we completed so far? How many have we completed so far? How many have we completed so far? And it has nothing to do with the team's work. You're just okay. doing a checkpoint on metrics. OK, so let me get in there because that's what you were describing works. OK, and that's a flow process. And, you know, Amos, Amos, Craig, all kind of all of us here, I, I don't want to, I hope the audience doesn't take this the wrong way, but we're kind of, I want to say at the elite level of practice, we kind of, if we're working here, we would, ah! no, 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 we would know to do that. Okay. 
Many people who are just starting, they don't have all this experience we have. And so this idea that Scrum says, you know what? At the end of two weeks, you're going to ship. Okay, you're going to ship your software out there. You're going to do a demo whether you like it or not. I would say that that kind of is the training wheels to get it to where you understand the discipline, the feedback and the learning that occurs when you go through that process. And then to your point, I think it would be great to say once you learn how to do that, maybe then you say you don't need the time box. But I've been in many environments where a team say they start doing Kanban. Lee, you and I lived this last year. We had the team. We started doing Kanban. And what happened in the done queue? It got all jammed up because we never had a demo with our product owner because they could never agree at a schedule. If so well, that has nothing to do with a sprint. Well, no, a sprint that has- with scheduling a meeting, a single no. meeting. But, the, but Scrum as a framework, since it's driven on a time box, it allows you to set that stuff and it, it can help. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Because you had a schedule, you were able to schedule with the customer? Because you didn't <laughs> have a schedule, the customer wasn't able to schedule with you? Wow. That is the craziest customer I've ever heard of. It must be a quantum customer. Well, okay. Again, I mean, you guys can say that, but I'm saying in real life. There is the need for a business to maintain alignment across business units that are writing different software. Now, before you got to that point, though, I agree. It is a good way to start. It's a way to, to have, start. Have hopefully a two week or iteration. So many teams start with Scrum and then fail. So many. Then like, why? So so do, do, would those teams fail, fail without Scrum? So let me ask I, you this. I don't know, but I see that the iteration sprint idea is where they fall down the most. So that's what kills them. They get caught up in it and they have to stay there and they can't get out of it. And then they start to an unsustainable pace because they overplanned and they're not learning even with an agile coach, because let's face it, 90% of the people who probably have a scrum master certification are still shitty ass managers. The rigidity of Scrum is really, I think, what the issue is here. It's the fact that you have to, and I've seen Scrum Masters do this and coaches do this. They say, oh, you're not following the uh, prescriptive guidance of Scrum, and therefore you, you must go back and do it right. As opposed to what the team says, oh, gee, you know, we, we started with this thing and we found that we've got a, a better way. or We think we might have a better way. We'd like to try it. Oh, no, you can't do that. I think better way is in the first sentence of the Agile Manifesto is the funny part about that. No, we found a better way. You cannot have a better way. It's impossible. Hey guys, here's an idea. Why not check out our sponsor, CodeShip? CodeShip is so simple to use. You can get your project set up and building on CodeShip in as little as three minutes. If you're not using CodeShip, then you're spending more time on continuous delivery than necessary. Our good friends at CodeShip won't even ask you for a credit card to get you started. I know, I've done it. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're worried that you'll run into a problem or you'll have trouble getting started. Fear not. If you need help getting started, you'll find all the help you need on the CodeShip blog at blog.codeship.io. Plus, their blog has tons of interesting and helpful posts and videos to help you elevate your continuous delivery. If all else fails, the good people at CodeShip are easy to reach, and they are always happy to help. Few things in life are easy, but this is one of them. Let CodeShip make continuous delivery simple for you. Go and visit codeship.io slash thisagilelife and use the offer code thisagilelife when you sign up, and you'll receive a 20% discount for three months on any paid plan. Thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring This Agile Life. 
I just like it when when Jason starts to go into like a Chicago accent oh. in the middle of some of his explanations. Well, again, Amos, I want to challenge you to go do some homework. And you're talking about failed scrum implementations. I want you to find a few. I want you to do root cause analysis. I'll help you do it. Okay, give me the data. Let's figure out why it failed. Okay, so let's just not say scrum fails. Because again, more often than not, when Scrum fails, I've been in a few of those environments, kind of, I call it restorative coaching, like from yoga, where, okay, hey, we tried Scrum, it didn't work out. Okay, well, let's figure out, oh, here's where you went wrong, you know? Maybe you didn't focus, and the team, as they were trying to track their velocity, the business didn't have a good partnership with the team, and their business was forcing the team to do more work than it could do. And again, that's where the business, in accordance with Scrum, is not doing what they're supposed to do. If the team's velocity is 10 stories per week, I'm sorry, business, you get 10 stories per week. Okay, you can't have 12. You can have 10. You can have whatever 10 you want. You just got to prioritize them, but you only get 10. The problem is, is that you don't get 10 necessarily. You might get eight this week well, or, put- or 11 the next week. And the point is, is that, oh, they'll be happy on those 11, but then they're going to grill you when you on those eight weeks. But again, so can we get- thing, the key thing that Scrum says the business or the customer is a partner with the team. Okay. So well, let's, let's get rid of the iteration idea completely out of scrum and throwing Kanban. And I'm, I'm pretty much in for most of it. All right. Well, ain't nothing to say there. There's, I could, there's but I'm seeing say. the I, chat. This says we want to move I, on. I think, so. Yeah. I think we have a little more that we'd like to discuss. So let's move on and see what else we can get into fight. We about. can all see who's going to get a speaking invitation for the next scrum Alliance conference. And I don't think it's going to be Amos. <laughs> well, Maybe David what? Anderson will call you and ask you to come talk. Are, to his are they afraid of criticism? Are they afraid of criticism? Well, it's funny because that's kind of in the article where they talk about marketing. So, right. That, that's what I see Scrum as is is a big marketing campaign. Well, let's see what what else Craig has for us to talk about. Um, well, we should talk about marketing if we want to. I didn't really have much to talk about as the marketing measuring their worth. But things I want to talk about is he says Scrum implementations often break. Well, so does everything else. So you know, if you let something break or you do it wrong, that's going to happen. With no matter if you're using Scrum or whatever you're choosing. So I, I didn't find that a valid complaint. I don't think it breaks anything more than anything else. I mean, who is it to say? This is one one man who, even if you compiled together a a number of people's anecdotal evidence, who is to say how often something breaks or doesn't work and what the root cause is? So, Craig, to your point, stuff breaks all the time, you know? Yeah. Ruby Ruby breaks. Does it suck? (laughs) Uh, Sometimes, yeah. Well, okay. Sometimes. You got to know. That's an important thing, you know. You may like Scrum, you may like Ruby, but you should know its limitations too. Well, but again, that's one thing that Scrum, to its credit, you can do very well because you can take a scenario kind of like I was just describing with when the customer is out of line or the customer is not being a good partner with the team. And you could basically at that point, that's a mechanism to provide feedback to the customer that they're breaking the system. And maybe at that point, then if they don't like it, then to your point, Amos, maybe that's your, your reason to change to go to something else. But understand that, again, the team still has a finite capacity to do work. Here's another inflammatory statement from the, the article that we, we can use to get into an argument about. Scrum, <laughs> Scrum devalues measuring progress being working software because we track velocity as a metric. Well, because we track velocity as a metric, I understand the tracking of velocity. I still do it. But at the same time, I watch teams 
that the tracking of velocity turns them into let's write crappy software and just try to jam this through. We need and to I increase our velocity. QA, right. I watch QA well, teams getting backed up because they're failing everything and the teams are doing just a shittier job of planning and a shittier job of <coughs> architecture. <coughs> Gosh, I think I about choked on that word. We've talked a lot about <laughs> velocity on well, this podcast. Okay, but hang on, hang on. I would like to bring up the third fallacy of Scrum that we have now touched tonight. We're having revelations, okay? Velocity is a team metric, okay? It's something for the team to use to guide its process and to assess its activities. So, like, recently I was in an environment where they literally had a velocity dashboard for, like, all their teams they weren't doing scaled agile because scaled agile, you kind of have to do that, but that's another story. But again, that's a team health metric. So what the team communicates to the business, this is our goal that we're trying to get done. Okay. And to be fair, that could be a functionality driven goal. If you're doing Kanban or for scrum, it could be a time boxed goal. Okay. So here's some goal where here's the stories we know will get done this sprint. And then there's a range. Okay. But at that point, the velocity is something the team uses and it doesn't really leave the team. And if a team does that, then it's at the team's discretion and the team's not going to game it. So velocity is for one thing and one thing only. And that is to predict how much we can get done in the next iteration. Yeah, that that's is a it. Team as a discussion. team discussion. As a team. team discussion. Yes. I don't and care so, who does it, but that is if you use it for anything else, you are wrong. You what don't kind of, understand velocity. What else yeah, can you, you use please it for? stop comparing two teams by the velocity of number of stories they get done? Yeah. And what else would you possibly use a velocity for? To say, hey, we need to increase our velocity. Yeah. Or hey, we, <laughs> well, no, or hey, guess what? As a team, let's say let's say we're kind of we believe what um what Troy McGinnis says that stories naturally normalize the cycle time. So we we got a team. We normally get, you know, about 12 stories done a, a week. OK. And then this NBA shows up that John hates and says, hey, let's put some more people on that team. See if it increases the velocity. So we add four people to the team. OK, well, guess what? Let's see what changes. We probably can hypothesize that initially the velocity won't change because there's learning and stuff. If anything will probably go down. That actually happens a lot if you have a large team. But you can use that to assess the impact of changes and make decisions about, hey, you know, Mr. MBA that was really smart. You added those four people. Our velocity got worse. We tried it for a month. Nothing happened. So you know what? We really don't need those people. Make them go away. We just want to be a team of eight. And then it'll go down again. This this is probably (laughs) sidetracking a little bit, but the velocity getting worse when you add people, I haven't really seen. I've seen a team of eight add four people and the velocity still goes up, but it doesn't go up four people worth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just collaboration. One person worth. Yeah. Which 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 goes down first, which is a decrease. Well, right. And I would say that your velocity will probably go up. Your quality is what what really hurts. I have a question for you guys. If velocity is to be used as a planning tool for the next sprint, and if we were regimented about making sure that we were conservative when we came up with when we planned our sprint and then ask the team to commit to it. Why is it that so many people seem to have a hard time with making that commitment? I'm one of those people. I don't like commitment at all but you um, got because it. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's funny for I, a married man to say, yeah, uh, <laughs> I got married late in life. So it's not that funny. <laughs> uh, I was a commitment for believe me. So a commitment is basically so there's stuff I don't know that you probably haven't told me that you're going to hold me accountable for. So it's the fear of that, the unknown for you, Craig. 
Well, it's not just the fear of the unknown. It's the, I know that there are unknowns. And I know that most likely the person pulling me to the commitment is going to sneak up some of those unknowns on me. So, what are you, what are you Donald Rumsfeld all of a sudden? Yes, uh, there are known knowns and unknown unknowns, right. which, which is kind of the, the, the unknown knowns are the most interesting to me. Jason. <laughs> or a few of us here did have the opportunity to work not too long ago with a retired two-star general, and he was not afraid to call it like it was. And in that scenario, he would say that, unfortunately, that's bad leadership. Because, you know, I've never run into bad leadership anywhere. Well, again, (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest. There's a lot of bad leadership out there, period. And that's where, again, you're trying to again, I'll go back to the business. You're trying to run a business to run a business. You need to set goals. You have to. Okay, all types of business scenarios. Goals is very different. Okay, but so again, you have to set a goal. So guess what? As a team, we set a goal to try to get something done. And you know what? We didn't make it. That's okay. And the problem at that point is that's a learning opportunity. Many people at that point say, you know what? I want to blame someone. I want to blame the team. And that's bad leadership. And because that is so rampant and ubiquitous in you know, IT and all over the world, that's why people are afraid to make a commitment. They're afraid to be accountable because they're afraid it's going to be held against them. And what actually happens when they do that is they preclude their ability to learn. So this idea of saying, hey, you know, if you run, runners get this real well. So, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to get I'm going to go to try to run a mile in like six minutes. OK, I have no idea if I do it. I might try really hard. I get at my pace. I can use my app and I'll get some feedback. And you know what? If I don't make it, I didn't make it. Big deal. But you know what? I learned what held me back. And then I can use that feedback to say, OK, you know what? Six minutes is too aggressive for me. I can do 620. So I'll try for 620. Once I get good at 620, let's ratchet it down to 610. And you can you can do that. So that kind of almost gets us back to this idea of running in a sprint. You know, I'm not going to run a four minute mile because that's not sustainable unless you're like some awesome runner dude, which unfortunately I'm not. It's a leadership problem. So we got to have better leadership. So the I article talks about leadership. Tice's advice whenever I fail. So the man, the article talks about trusting people to do their jobs. And yeah, that's great. But tech managers really like to micromanage. I think of all the managers in the world. Bad leadership. Are, are probably the worst about micromanaging. And I find that agile self-directed teams are sort of meant to remove external micromanagement by replacing it with internal micromanagement. The team micromanages itself. We determine, you know, we have a rule for how to pick the next work. And so the manager doesn't have to tell you, okay, he doesn't have to sign work because we have a a rule on how to finish one ticket. You pick the ticket up from here. And I think, you know, yeah, management really does need to trust the people they're hiring to do their jobs. It's really the key. But this is sort of a way to, to help them with that, I guess. If you don't trust them, it's better for both of you for them to have a new job. (laughs) Or you. The final few sentences or paragraph in this article is kind of the ultimate resignation, I think, from Giles, where he, he basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, says, if other fields can't measure their worth, why should we try and measure our worth in IT? And then he points to marketing being the classic case of marketing has never been able to adequately you know assess their their value so there's there's a big difference between marketing and development and that is that for some reason even if the software is your product or service it's usually seen as a cost center not as a profit center marketing is usually seen as a profit center and i don't even understand the logic going through someone's head to make that the case but that's the way companies treat it I don't think marketing is seen as a profit center. I think marketing is seen as pure cost. 
Now it, it has a revenue, it has a potential revenue generating impact, but I would say that more often than not, companies look at areas like product development, manufacturing as being things that are generating profits, not marketing. The first thing that a lot of companies cut when they go into hard times is marketing. Oh, I've seen the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them cut IT staff before marketing. Yeah. And they and, start cutting IT staff. Now, marketing, when they finally cut it, gets cut a lot harder because you can't continue to work without the IT staff. But the IT staff, I usually see as the first, unless they are the breadwinner of that company, meaning it's a consulting firm. But this is kind of a death rattle argument of, oh my God, we can't measure other things. Why measure IT? I think IT and software development, I think management just wants it to be justified more, right? Well, I think marketing has been around longer, too, that they I, I sort of that, have justification. Okay, I will not call this bad leadership, but this is what I would call a learning opportunity. Because I think a lot of times in the business community, there isn't, there isn't knowledge on how really to measure IT's worth. And really, again, if you're doing all the stuff we're talking about here, where you're incrementally delivering software, regardless if it's in a sprint or if it's in a flow, there's ways you measure that, which... I've, I've seen very few firms do that effectively. I also think that with most IT departments or companies that aren't selling software or selling IT consulting, those IT departments are essentially multipliers, force multipliers for the rest of the company. And that's really hard to gauge as to how much you are assisting your salespeople in being able to sell or assisting your administrative staff to be able to do their jobs efficiently. I mean, that's really tough to measure. What about this statement from Giles? There's not a need to measure in a field of work like software development where failure and success are obvious to the naked eye. Do you guys feel like failure and success in, in software development is obvious to the naked eye? Uh, well, well, I was going to say, to me, that goes full circle back to what we started about with talking about the terminology sprint. So Agile challenges and Scrum embraces this idea that the primary measure of progress is working software. So we can have working software. We can get it out the door. But again, to the naked eye, hey, the site works. Awesome. But guess what? If it was a brutal marathon, you know, with, you know, 90 hour weeks to get it done, you know, that's the thing you need to measure because that's not sustainable. So I think you do need to measure it. And you guys, it shouldn't come as a, as a surprise to any of you or anyone who listens to the podcast. You need to measure everything and you should. And there are scientific measures to measure it all and make sane decisions based upon real data. Go ahead, Craig. So I think, well, there's two kinds of software quality, internal and external. External is what the customer sees. Internal is basically maintainability. Can I update this, modify it, add features? Is it going to break every week, every day? Some of it is not visible. Those internal quality metrics are not visible to anyone except for the developers, if even that. But maybe, maybe we measure software because we can measure it. You know, we, there, there are things that can be measured. You know? There are also things that can't be measured, even to the fact of, does Agile work? Well, one of the problems with software is there are so many confounding variables that it's hard to measure any single thing. But it is easy enough to measure you know, how did I do last week versus how do I do this week? And I think some of the agile practices actually remove some of the need to measure, like let's do the most important things first. Hey, then we don't have to measure as much, you know, did we get value? Well, we got all as much value as we could. Jason? Yes. Well, if we're done, I was going to say, 
Scrum is good. Scrum is a great way to, to get started. And for many organizations, it can help you be effective. So Scrum um, should die in a fire. No, Scrum, <laughs> Scrum is good. And the key thing I do want to, I, I do think it is good to say, and I, just to reinforce again from the book, the definition, Scrum is a lightweight project management framework. It's kind of evolved to be somewhat <laughs> lightweight. Well, again, number one, it should be lightweight. Okay. So that's a good, a good assessment point. But it's also kind of, you know, the original Scrum, it was just about project management. The reason I want to go there is that you do need to think about the engineering practices and the technical practices, because if you want to go faster and, you know, you're not doing test-driven development, you're not refactoring your code, you're not going to be able to sustain that. So the number one thing I've also seen that does cause Scrum to fail is people only focus on the project management aspects. They don't look at the big picture, so they don't think about clean code and refactoring, test automation, continuous integration, all that stuff. And at that point, that's Amos to what you brought up. That's when Scrum works for maybe about three months. And after that, your code has become so crufty, you can't change it. So I would hope that that's because Scrum doesn't talk about technical practices. It only talks about. I know. So that's what I'm saying is if you're a leader of an organization, you say I'm doing Scrum. You should say, I need to do some other things in addition to just the Scrum framework. And now you're not lightweight anymore. Scrum, well, Scrum is a management framework. It's a project management management framework. It is not really inclusive. So what I'm asking everyone to make sure they're aware of is, again, if you're simply doing Scrum, be careful and understand that you need to also embrace a lot of the engineering practices really from extreme programming or other methodologies out there to ensure that you can sustain business agility. All right, let's wrap it up and do our picks. This week's hottest picks. And I'll go first, guys. This week, my picks are a little bit different. I've been trying to uh, make, you know, network out into our listener audience. And I've started by individually emailing 10 of our listeners that signed up for uh, the 10 free resources on agile resources on, on the website. You mean they get 10 free people, John? Of course I don't mean ten that. Free <laughs> and I sent emails out to 10 of our listeners and three of them responded back. And they are Rob Jago, Tom Woundy, who you know, Jason, from the Agile New England. Yeah, I wish we had the Agile Games 2015 site up. It's not there yet. We're, we're getting ready to do a survey for Agile Games to figure out when to do it, but it's not ready yet. So look for that in the coming weeks if you follow Agile New England. Are you going to do it in St. Louis? Agile New England in St. Louis. That would be great. No, we go to Boston so we can <laughs> oh. look at the harbor. So Hava. Yeah, and have a tea party. And the third listener was Feroz Sheikh. I'm sorry, I'm butchering your name. I'm I'm almost positive of it. But thank you for responding, and thanks for listening. Craig, what are your picks? All right, my first pick is an article by Joel Spolsky from 2007 called Evidence-Based Scheduling. Basically talks about how to use the velocity properly, kind of how we talked about to use it uh, predictively. Uh, it is probably the best description of how to use velocity properly that I've ever seen. Uh, my second pick is... An article, a recent article called This is Why You Never End Up Hiring Good Developers. Uh, a lot of good points in there. And I especially like what she says about team fit. You know, team fit is usually not a very good uh, way to find people. It kind of pins you into hiring people like yourself. She suggests more instead of, does this person fit on my team? More like, will this person work well? 
and add to the team. And I think a lot of people talk about team fit, and I think that can be a problem with diversity unless you are aware of your own biases and, and make up for them. So those are my two picks. Good picks, Craig. Thanks. Let's see what Amos has for us this week. Okay, so everybody's uh, picking some Agile stuff, picking our uh, listeners' noses. And, and I, I want to thank all listeners' noses, but uh, I'm I'm going to pick something kind of off the wall, like I usually do. Uh, Wickham House is uh, it's an Etsy group that they make handmade bow ties, and Jeremy McAnally is a software developer for Mandia, and it's him and his wife that do it. Uh, I thought it was really cool, and they also have a bow tie of the month club where they will send you a bow tie every month. Well, bow ties, huh? It's an interesting pick. I, I, Amos, where, where exactly are you wearing all of these handmade bow ties that you're buying? Uh, I wear bow ties all the time. I wear them to my office where I sit alone. Um, I have a dance that I am taking my, I'm chaperoning my daughter to on Friday, and I will probably wear a bow tie there just to embarrass her. I'm thinking bow tie and cut off shorts with uh, Ah. with my pockets hanging out. I think I saw you wear a bow tie uh, to a customer visit recently. I probably did. Bow ties, hmm. I would have never guessed. Bow ties are cool. Fezzes are cool. So I guess my other pick might be Doctor Who. You should put those two concepts together. Bow ties ties and and fezzes? Yeah. It's called Doctor Who. Okay. (laughs) David Tennant. No, not David Tennant. No. Matt Smith. Matt Smith. Come on. The other doctor. I've had a lot of beer tonight. (laughs) Lee will straighten you out on Doctor Who. Lee, what are your picks (laughs) this week? So uh, my pick is actually a blog by Zach Hallman. Some great stuff. It's at uh, ZachHallman.com. In particular, I really enjoyed the Bug Fixes as Therapy blog, which I identify with greatly. So, cool blog. That sounds good. I'll have to read that one. You should look him up on Conference Talks, too. He's got some good Conference Talks. I'm almost afraid to go to Tice because he's got a truckload of picks in the show notes. I've done a few sprints, and so now my sprints are queued up. I'm going to have a release. Ah. I'm ready. I got three for it. I got three. Wait, you queued up a bunch of sprints before you released? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, He is obviously not using coach. That is in the book of scrub. Okay. There are, there are drawbacks to that. I also have a DevOps workshop if you want to learn how to stop doing that, but three picks for tonight for fun. Since we did talk about scrum tonight a lot, Adam Weisbart, a scrum coach. He's actually a CST. So he's a scrum trainer. He put together a fun little video. It's on YouTube. I don't, I have kids. I don't say bad words. Um, So it's the poo poo bad scrum masters say. And so check that out. It's about three minutes. It's got, I believe, about 28 things that technically a scrum master should never do. And they've made fun of it. You'll laugh if you're doing scrum. So that's one Adam's cool video out there on YouTube. Number two, um, if you want to have some fun with iOS 8, 3M has an updated version of their Post-it app. What this does, if you use Post-its in the Agile space, we use a lot of Post-it notes. You can take the Post-its, put them on a wall, put them on a table, take a picture of them with your iOS device that is that has iOS 8 on it. And it will create little scalar vector images of all the post-it notes. And then you can rearrange them and do things with them. Lots of cool ways to capture artifacts that you might generate, say, in a retrospective, and then have them be little post-its you can move around. Third, last but not least, uh, John, a few weeks ago or a few episodes, he mentioned he's going to Agile DC. I'm actually going to Agile DC, too, which uh, which is on Tuesday, the 21st of October, 2014. And we're going to do a Lego game there, which is all about 
the last responsible moment will be a lot of fun. It's a safe way to experiment and figure out when that last responsible moment is. You might win, you might lose. You'll have a lot of fun. And um, if what happens in DC happens or the same thing happens to what we did in St. Louis, people talked about it like for two weeks afterwards because it was so controversial. So we're going to do that in DC on Tuesday, October 21st, 2014. And please come join us. Now, John's going to be there to talk about affinity estimation. He even talks about no estimates. So lots of fun in his session, too. You know, Jason maybe will, like, buy you a beer on his vice president <laughs> expense account that he has. I have to ship all of my Lego to buy. His vice, vice president level expense account. Oh, jeez. Guys, don't leave me up there with Tice by myself. Oh, <laughs> I'm coming. <laughs> Somebody join me so we can... I got friends in D.C. We'll have some you, you fun. You can help back me up. Paul Boos will come help us out. Apparently, Amos wants to say something here. Uh, just while we're talking about conferences, Craig has been chosen to speak at RubyConf in San Diego uh, in November. So oh, well, we should Craig. plug that, man. How come that wasn't Craig's pick? Because we have, we have a few months before that, and I haven't not, even barely started the presentation. He's not very good at self-promotion either. Oh, but he's on a podcast. Well, we'll help you out with that. We're good with some of us are good with that. <laughs> All right, guys. Good picks. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us here tonight and listening into the podcast. That's all we have time for. Check out our website at thisagilelife.com for these show notes and for all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening and keep living This Agile Life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.